Well, it's a pleasure being with you this morning. It's a pleasure to be able to open up God's word and to preach to you. Uh, Let me pray for us one more time, and then we'll turn to our passage for the morning. All right, let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your goodness to us in Christ. Father, we thank you for the hope that we find in your word. Lord, we pray that you'd help us now to listen carefully to what you've recorded for us in the book of Titus. And Lord, we pray that in doing that, we would be encouraged and helped to follow you. We pray you would help us to do that, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, we don't really feel like we know someone until we know what their motivations are, do we? We can, we can know about someone, but we like to know what makes them tick. We, want, we like to understand what are they about, what are they... What are they trying to accomplish? What, what's the reason behind the things that they've done? I think that's why, you know, whether it's a favorite sports star or a politician or some other hero, we love like celebrity interviews. We like like talk shows and biographies and things that allow us to feel like we understand not just what happened, but why did the person do what they did? Well, how about... God. Do you feel like you understand God's motivations? Like, why has God done what he's done in history? Well, he's, he's not going to submit to a celebrity interview. You know, you're not going to figure it out just reading the paper. But God has revealed to us something of his motivations. He's revealed to us something of what he's doing in the world and And even why he does it. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. To try to understand more about God's motivation, particularly in the gospel. Uh, And we'll find that in the letter that Paul wrote to Titus. If you have a Bible and you want to turn there, I think you'll be helped. We're going to look in the, the third chapter of the book of Titus. And in that, God reveals what he's up to in the the most significant work he's done for us in creation, in, in the sending of his son Jesus into the world. So my prayer this morning is that while we look at this brief passage, we'll understand more about what God's motivation is. And we'll understand more about how we should be changed by what he's done. So let's turn now and look. Starting in verse 4, we're going to particularly consider verses 4 to 7. In chapter 3 of the book of Titus. And there we read this. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. Not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy. Through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. He poured out his spirit on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that, having been justified by his grace, we may become heirs with the hope of eternal life. In particular, there are three questions that I want us to ask of the text that I think will help us to understand more about what God's up to in the world. Three three sort of categories, really. Number one, God's motivation. Motivation. What did God save us to do? 
I'm sorry, motivation, why did God save us? Number two, method, how does God save us? And then number three, mission, what did God save us to do? So since I may confuse you, let me start again. Motivation, why did God save us in the first place? Method, how does God save us? And then mission, what did God save us to do? We see the first question answered right in the very first verse of the passage that we're going to be looking at. Verse number four. If you look back down there, we read this. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. I think that one verse, verse four, reveals two different reasons why God has saved sinners in the gospel. And the number one reason is this, because he's kind. Now, it might be very easy if you're used to being around Christian things or you come to church regularly, it might be really easy just to skip over that. Well, yeah, God's kind. That's kind of what he does. That's his job. But no, think about it just a minute. The God that we've gathered this morning to worship is actually a kind God. He's a God that he doesn't just do what he does, but he's motivated by his own internal emotions. He has an emotional life that's unbelievably complex for people like us who live inside of time. But he's actually motivated by things. And one of the main motivations for what God does is the fact that he is a kind and good God. You know, just at the outset, it's good for us to reflect on this and meditate on it. Because as a pastor, as somebody who's been a pastor for quite a few years, one of the things that I think causes people the most difficulty in life is that they actually struggle to really believe this fact. They can believe maybe that God's in charge of everything. And they may believe that God has, you know, done things for them in history. But they kind of suspect, because they know their own sin and their own heart, they kind of suspect that that God is just sort of putting up with them. He's just sort of tolerating them. That God maybe has a sense of duty. It's his job to do these things that he does. so, So he does them faithfully, but kind of grudgingly. Maybe he's even just a little bit malicious. But the Bible tells us that God is kind. He's gentle. He's loving. I think that's why Jesus, one of his favorite images to help us understand God was that of a shepherd who graciously and patiently and kindly cares for his sheep. God is kind. That's why he saved any of us that are saved. The passage also tells us another reason, though. God is kind and God does what he does because God loves us. His kindness doesn't really demand that. God God could still be a kind God and still give us what we deserve, which is judgment for our sins, frankly. But God is also loving. He loves us. We see that again right there in our passage. Don't skip over it when you're just beginning to read this. It seems like background, but it's incredibly important. But when the kindness of God our Savior 
and his love for mankind appeared. You know, I, I remember when I was in high school, I had a teacher that was, she was kind, she was competent, she did everything she was supposed to do as a teacher. But it was really obvious that she didn't like any of us. I don't know, I won't tell her name since I've said that, but, you know, her, her words were perfectly kind words, but they were often said through sort of gritted teeth. And you just got the feeling that she was kind of ready to be done with high school students and do something else with her life. But that's not how the Bible presents God. God's presented as a loving God who's kind to us, not because he has to be. It's not the kind of forced kindness of, you know, a dutiful teacher. But that he's actually motivated by love. And I bring that up because I think this can be especially important for people who are sort of churchgoers, like most of you, who I assume turn up most every Sunday at a Christian church, in part because it's the thing that God tells us to do in his word. We, we gather regularly, we listen to preaching, we hear the gospel, but sometimes we can kind of lose a little bit of the thread and forget that you know, the reason we're really here is because the God who created everything actually loved us in Christ, that he cares about us individually, that he's a good and a loving God. And, you know, one of the the most humbling things about the Christian message is to understand that God is kind and loving because he is and not because of anything that we've done. There's nothing in us that's sort of pulling that out of him. Uh, Paul just sort of starts this passage mentioning these things, just helping us to understand that, that God is kind because he is. And God loves us simply because he does. That's kind of all there is to it. But you could kind of be forgiven for hearing these things. And it could still feel kind of nebulous. Okay, he's kind in general, though we have circumstances in our life that don't feel very kind. Or he's loving, but you may not feel especially loved by God right now. Well, that's why, that's why Paul puts that little phrase on the end of that verse. Did you notice? He doesn't just mention God's kindness and his love, but he says, But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared. Well, now that's, that's different than just saying that God is generally kind and loving. Paul's saying that, that God's kindness and love toward particular humans actually showed up. Like it actually appeared. I think Paul's clearly thinking about the incarnation of Christ, that this kind and loving God actually sent his own son into the world to be born as a human being and to live a perfect life, the life that none of us have lived. And that, that perfect son, as Nick talked about just a little bit earlier in the service, that son, Jesus, actually consented to be killed and to die on a cross in the place of everyone who would ever turn from their sins and trust in him. And that Jesus 
was raised from the dead by God on the third day to show that his sacrifice that he made was actually sufficient to pay for our sins. That's That's what Paul means when he says that word appeared. That God actually put flesh and bones on his kindness and his love when he sent Jesus into the world. So, so we as Christians, we don't just look to our own circumstances to try to figure out, is God really kind? Does God really love me? Our circumstances are, are really bad measures of that because we know that God's wisdom and his love and kindness is sometimes inscrutable to us. It sometimes involves difficulties that we may only understand in eternity. But no, we, we understand that God is kind and loving because he sent his son into the world to die for sinners. Paul writes about that elsewhere in Romans. In Romans chapter 8, 32, Paul just kind of takes this logic and says, look, if Jesus came into the world as a visual representation of God's love and kindness, why would we ever think that God would stop loving us? Or that he's not loving us even in things that seem difficult. The way Paul puts it is this. He says, God did not even spare his own son, but offered him up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything? So Christian, if you're, if you're tempted this morning to look at your circumstances and say, you know, I'm just not really sure that God's kind. Or I'm, I'm not really sure that God loves me right now. The, the antidote is to look back to the cross and realize that God's kindness and love actually showed up, actually appeared in the person of Jesus. And if God loved you enough to do that, then you can trust that he will continue to be kind and to be loving, even through hard circumstances. Well, why did God save us? Those of us that have turned to him in faith? Well, because he's kind and he's loving. And the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus proves that point forever. That's our first point. Why why did God save us? Because he's kind and because he's loving. But how did God accomplish that? That takes us to the second question. For this sermon. How does God save us? What was his method? What did he do in order to save us? When Paul keeps on writing about that. uh, We see that as we continue on in verse 4. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared. He saved us. Not by works of righteousness that we had done. But according to his mercy, through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. How did God save us? Well, by the appearance and the atoning work of Christ. Through the regenerating and renewing work of the Holy Spirit. That's the answer that Paul gives. Let's let's unpack it a little bit. So. How did God save us? Well, first, there at the end of verse 4, because Jesus appeared. You know, Paul makes it clear the appearance of Jesus and our being saved are, are intricately related. 
Isaiah in Isaiah 53 talks about how Jesus, by living this perfect life and taking the punishment for our sins and rising to life to be the first fruit of the promised inheritance, he he secured salvation for everyone who would ever repent of their sins and trust in him. That's that's how God saved us, by sending Jesus. But he says more than that. He says that God saved us mercifully, by his mercy. He says that in verse 5, when he says that God saved us according to his mercy. Now again, I think that's... That's a point that's worth thinking about, especially if you're someone who turns up in church regularly and you hear the Christian gospel regularly. It can just be really easy to confuse sort of the fruits of salvation with the cause of salvation, especially, frankly, if you've been a Christian for a long time. And if, by God's grace, you've been a faithful Christian, you've continued to serve Christ you know, some of you may have been doing that for decade after decade after decade. And you may see real sort of fruit in your life. You know, fruit in greater holiness, greater love for God's word, greater faithfulness to what God's written in his word. And it can be really easy if you're one of those people to begin to kind of rely on the good stuff you're doing for your confidence. You begin to, to feel, you know, you're still humble, but... But you do feel a bit of a satisfaction when you look back on your own track record as a Christian. It's very easy to begin to be confused over that. Well, I think that's why Paul is so especially clear when he says that this was was a salvation that we got not by works of righteousness that we had done. So just forget about that. But according to God's mercy. You know, we... We want to be careful about this because one of the other dangers of being someone who has been a faithful Christian is we can become kind of like the older brother in the parable that Jesus told. Do you remember the the parable of the prodigal son? It's all about the, the son who left and wasted his father's money. But he repented and he came back and the father forgive, forgave him. And we, we, we pay attention a lot of times to that central part of the story, which is great. But there's also this older brother who just seems to be sort of ticked off about the whole thing because he's been he's been pretty faithful. And this other kid who kind of squandered all the money is getting welcomed back. Well, you know, if I've been a Christian for for quite a long time, I think probably for 40 years, it can be really tempting to feel like other new converts to Christianity kind of haven't earned their place yet in the family. Well, that's just not true. You know, God, God welcomes us because of his mercy, not because of the righteous things we've done. Those things aren't without value. We'll talk about those more in a minute. But they're, they're not the reason that we're saved. We're saved no matter how faithful a life we've lived. We're saved only and completely by God's mercy. Paul keeps going, though. He tells us even more sort of mechanistically how that happened. If we keep reading there at the end of verse 5. He saved us, we also see, through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. You know, 
We're saved because Christ came. We're saved wholly by the mercy of God. And we're saved because God, through his Holy Spirit, has changed us. If, if you're sitting here today and you are a Christian, if you're someone who has repented of your sins and you've trusted in Christ and you are now secure in the hope of your salvation, well, it's only because of Jesus' work. It's only because, the, because of the mercy of Christ. And it's only because God, with his sovereign power, has changed you. He's made you to be a different person. You know, that's just regeneration is a complex way of saying that God has changed us. He's made us to be reborn, not by our wisdom or not because of our virtue or not because of our general interest in spiritual things, but through the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, if we believe those three things, that has huge implications for how we live out our life as Christians. For one thing, it should make us humble. We, we can be thankful for the fruit that God's born in our life, but we don't need to be proud about it. It's all of God's mercy. It's all ultimately of God's doing. It's all because God has given us a new and living hope. We've been born again. It also should have implications for what we do in our relationships to other people particularly for our evangelism, for how we share the gospel with other people. Because I think the more we understand how our own salvation was all God's work, it was his initiative in sending Christ, it was his mercy, it was his Holy Spirit regenerating us, rebirthing us into Christ. The more we understand those things, the more confidence we're going to have when we share that same gospel message with somebody else. Because frankly, if you're anything like me, I suspect there are people that you know and you talk with and you just think, you know, I, just, I can't see that person ever becoming a Christian. They just don't seem interested. They don't seem like the kind of people that would, would ever believe the gospel. But if our confidence is in what God did... We should have a confidence that God can do the same thing to other people. Other people are not any more dead in their sins than we were before God saved us. I I was really encouraged years ago by my relationship with a a guy who happens to be a pastor in Turkey, a guy named Ahmet. And uh, I love his testimony because it's, it's one of those testimonies that just makes you more confident in evangelism because he's very candid. He, he'll, he'll tell how he met, well, at first he, he saw a newspaper ad to order a Bible. And he noticed that the newspaper ad had an American name attached to it. And he thought, oh, like, if there's Americans connected to this, maybe I can get a green card and go to America. So he wrote for a Bible. He didn't have any interest in it. And then, to his disappointment, this American guy showed up with the Bible and seemed to just want to talk to him about the Bible. But he thought, well, you know, if I hang out with this American, you know, he'll, he says that he had this vague idea that somehow he could maybe improve his standard of living if he hung out with this American. He said it wasn't a very organized plan. But he says that the first question he ever asked this American missionary was how much does a truck driver make in America? Um, 
He, he was just interested in what he could get. And he says, frankly, he kind of faked interest for about three years. Off and on, these, he would meet with these folks, but he wasn't really interested in spiritual things. He wanted to get to America and get a job as a truck driver and get a house you know, with a garage and a yard and all the things he'd seen on television. But he said that somewhere along the way, he, he realized that he actually believed this gospel message. And the reason I love his testimony is we can sometimes have a feeling that if we're sharing the gospel with someone and we find out they have some kind of ulterior motives, they're not really interested in the gospel, they just want this other thing. We can feel like, oh, like we've been used, we kind of been had, this person wasn't really interested. And I thought Ahmet one time, he said with, with remarkable sort of theological insight, he said, you know, I realize everyone who comes to the gospel has bad motives until they're converted. Because that's part of what it means to be born again, to be regenerated. God's changing our heart. You know, people who listen to you share the gospel, chances are they want something other than the glory of God and forgiveness for their sins that actually deserve hell. When they come to want that, I think they've become a Christian. And it helped me to realize I don't need to worry quite as much to sort of analyze whether somebody's motives are good or bad. Like If they're willing to listen to me talk to them about the gospel, I'll just do that. Because the Bible says that the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone that believes. Because God's the one who does the work in it. And it should make us confident in sharing the gospel. If someone will happily listen, I'm not encouraging you to like chase down unwilling listeners. That would be rude and awkward. And you don't want to do that. But if someone's willing to listen to you explain the gospel, just share it with them. You don't have to figure out you know, how close or far they are. Or how genuine or, or, you know, if they may have ulterior motives. We just need to share the gospel because it's God who regenerates. You know, the, the power of God to give new life whenever and wherever he wants is unstoppable. He's the one who does that. It should encourage us. Well, that was number two. Number three, yeah, we've talked about We've talked about why God saved us, just because he loves us. We've talked about how God saves us through the regenerating work of his Holy Spirit. And then number three, what did God save us to do? What is God's mission? And I think, again, for, for those of us who may come to church regularly, well, I think maybe for anyone, this may be kind of the hardest point to get our heads around. Because we may be able to believe God, God loved us, that's why he saved us. And we may be able to believe that he did it through his own spirit and the rebirth that he gave us at conversion. But we kind of feel like God must have saved us because he needed us to do something. But it's really interesting, if you keep reading this passage, there's not really anything that God seems to need. Look down and see... Why did God save us in verse 6? What did he want us to do? Well, he poured out his spirit on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we may become heirs 
with the hope of eternal life. God did have a purpose in saving us. There's something he wanted us to do. But it's not what I think we naturally may think. It's not so that we could work for him as a labor force. And I frankly think a lot of the ways people explain the gospel and sort of the work of God in the world, it looks more like a network marketing scheme than it does biblical Christianity. If you know a network marketing scheme, that's where like I decide I want to sell something. Usually it's something that nobody actually wants. But I recruit, you know, you guys to help sell it with me. And then you recruit two or three more other people to sell it with you. And we just keep recruiting people and getting them to sign up to sell this stuff until everybody in the world has a garage full of stuff that they don't really want, that they're trying to get other people to sell. Like that's, that's my caricature of like a pyramid scheme of network marketing. Well, I think some people think about the gospel that way. God saved me so that I could then share the gospel with two or three other people so that they would then share the gospel with two or three other people. And then, you know, in like seven multiplications, the whole world will be Christians. Well, I want people to be sharing the gospel. And God wants us to to be telling other people the hope that's in Christ. But it's not just so that we can sort of recruit more people for God's labor force. That's not why he saved you. It's not that he needs us to do work. You know, Jesus kind of talked about this in Matthew chapter 7. When he made it clear that God isn't primarily interested in our productivity. He says it this way, starting in verse 21. Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But only the one who does the will of my father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name, drive out demons in your name and do many miracles in your name? Then I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreaker. Well, regardless of the good things that you may be doing, if you're not resting on the hope of the gospel, and bearing the fruits of repentance and faith, simply being productive, we're still sort of missing out on our central duty as Christians. God intends something else for us that overflows in good works, but isn't actually, isn't actually you know, the main thing as good works. Well, let's look what, I told you what he doesn't mean. Let's look at what he actually means there in verse 6. Why did God save us? What did he he intend for us to do, actually? Well, he wanted to pour out his spirit on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Now, I understand sometimes for people, this may be a hard thing to grasp, that, that God's goal in saving you wasn't the fruit of salvation. And we're going to talk about that in a minute. You know, good works. James has stuff to say about that. But the first and primary reason that God saved any of us that he has saved was to make us an object 
of his love and his mercy to pour out his grace on us abundantly. An old preacher from New England, Jonathan Edwards, wrote about this uh, in one sermon. Uh, it's a long title. It's actually really interesting to read. It's called A Dissertation. That's, I mean, that makes you not want to read it right there, doesn't it? But A Dissertation Concerning the End for Which God Created the World. He just spends a whole sermon thinking, why did God create the world? What did he want to do? And he says this in part. He says, Christ has his delight most truly and properly in obtaining the salvation of his church, not merely as a means, but as what he rejoices and is satisfied in most directly and properly. This is proved by those scriptures which represent him as rejoicing in his obtaining the fruit of his labor and purchase as a bridegroom when he obtains his bride. Now, I'm not going to ask this question out loud. It could lead to some very, very embarrassing moments for some of you. But a rhetorical question, not to be answered. For those, for those of you who are men here and who are married, did you marry your wife primarily for the things you thought she could do for you? Or did you marry her because you wanted her to be your wife? Well, if you did the the former, I hope you have long since repented of that and learned your lesson. You know, when when Jesus so often uses that image of God being like a bridegroom wanting to marry his bride, that's the kind of motivation we're supposed to understand in the gospel. You know, hopefully you sought out your bride because you loved her and you wanted her to be your bride. And anything, and many things, probably many things you should be more aware of, that your bride has done for you in the ensuing years, those are wonderful. But they're not the main point. God set out to win a bride for himself because he wanted to love those that he would save. Christ's great delight is in having obtained the salvation of every one of you who is a Christian. That's what he's primarily delighted in, not not your, your productivity, what you've done since then. And he goes on to make that, to make that clear uh, when he talks about what the ultimate objective is. You see that as we keep reading on into verse 7. You know, he poured out his spirit on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, so that having been justified by his grace what he was talking about before, we may become heirs with the hope of eternal life. What did God save you to do? Well, he saved you to be an heir with Christ. That's his primary goal. That's what he intends to do. God didn't just save you because he's kind, but If you're a Christian, God saved you because he intends to go on being kind to you forever. That's that's his goal and purpose. In order to pour out the amazing riches of his kindness so that you would share in the wealth of the hope of heaven through Christ. Again, uh, Edwards keeps going on this theme 
And he says it in this way. He says, The creation of the world seems to have been especially for this end, that the eternal Son of God might obtain a spouse toward whom he might fully exercise the infinite benevolence of his nature and to whom he might, as it were, open and pour forth all that immense fountain of condescension, love, and grace that was in his heart and that in this way God might be glorified. To put it maybe more simply, God saved you because he loves you so that he can extravagantly love you because God's glorified in his overflowing and extravagant love for his people. So again, there's a danger sometimes for those of us that have been Christians for a long time. We can start thinking about about Christianity as sort of recruiting for God's labor force. And I think... You know, there's a danger, particularly for someone like me, who's thinking about going overseas to try to plant a church, but also to try to do evangelism. And I would love to see more Christians in the nation of Turkey. But my longing for that is not so that we can get, you know, this more evangelistic labor force so that they can do stuff. You know, I would love to see the whole nation converted. But that's not my primary goal in pursuing that. You know... Isaiah talks about this very clearly in trying to help us understand how this plays out in our own salvation. He says this in Isaiah 46. He says, Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb. Even to your old age, I am he. And to gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made you, and I will bear. I will carry, and I will save. Another pastor that I like commenting on this passage, he puts it this way, which is better than I could. He says this, he says, The difference between the true God and the gods of the nations is that the true God carries, and the other gods must be carried. God serves. They must be served. God glorifies his might by showing mercy. They glorify theirs by gathering slaves. You know, friend, you you just need to understand what God saved you to do primarily if you're going to live a Christian life that that's actually motivated by the kind of joy God intends us to have. He intends us to have the hope of eternal life. Did you notice that kind of like a funnel, you know, as we go through this passage, if we read back through the whole thing, it talks about all of God's kindness and his love and what he did in sending Jesus and his mercy and the washing of regeneration, renewal by the Holy Spirit and how he poured it out on us abundantly so that we're now justified so that we can become heirs And then it all pours down to this one point with the hope of eternal life. You know, friend, I don't know what what you sort of have on your to do list as a Christian when you think about 
what you want to accomplish as a Christian. But the sort of to-do list that you should draw out of this particular passage of Scripture uh, seems really clear. To receive God's Spirit, to delight in being an heir with Christ, and to rest in the confident hope that we have in heaven. You know, many of us don't, don't think about that sort of hope very often. We don't think about the security of our hope in heaven. I think uh, Americans in particular are really bad about thinking about heaven because we, we think about it as sort of escapism. I think we're sometimes kind of embarrassed that that would be our motivation. You know, people will talk about how being a Christian makes their life better now. You know, Jesus helped me, you know, he helped fix my marriage. Jesus helped me, you know, stop smoking. Jesus helped me, you know, whatever. But the Bible talks about how our motivation should be the secure hope that we have that Jesus has purchased an eternal hope for us in heaven. And that we shouldn't be embarrassed to be motivated by that. And you know, it's interesting, if you keep reading in our passage, the, the writer's clear. You know, we, we can sometimes think, oh, you know, if we're motivated by this, well, I've said all this stuff about what God's done and all the hope we have and how we're in air and delighting in Christ. But if we talk about that stuff, Maybe people won't be motivated to, to actually do good stuff. You know, there's always, we're always prone toward this slightly legalistic tendency to be kind of afraid sometimes of talking too much about the confidence and the hope and the joy that we have simply in the salvation that God's purchased for us. I think we're sometimes a little bit afraid to talk about how God has saved us simply because he wanted to save us and give us hope. Because maybe thinking, well, then people won't be motivated to do the things they ought to do. But, you know, it's interesting. Paul was not at all concerned about that. Uh, We see that if you keep reading in verse 8. It's interesting. After, After saying all this, Paul continues and says, This saying is trustworthy. The stuff we've just been talking about. I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God might be careful to devote themselves to good works. You know, far from thinking that if we're viewing God's love for us as simply his motivation to save us out of his own grace and mercy, far from that discouraging us to live lives of faithfulness and holiness and obedience to God's word, the Apostle Paul seems to think just the opposite will be the case. If we stress those things, then those who have believed in God will be careful to devote themselves to good works. Because God understands that if we're motivated by the kind of motivation we've talked about this morning, then God, and not our performance, will be what people notice. His work in saving us will be what gets glorified and not simply our obedience. So, so yes, you know, labor to be faithful as a Christian and be self-denying you know, in the face of the flesh. But do it for the reasons that Paul talked about this morning. Because you serve a kind and a loving God who saved you not because of righteous things you've done, but simply because of his mercy. And whose 
ultimate and overriding goal for your life is not what he can get out of you, but that he would be glorified in the extravagance of what he gives to you in Christ and ultimately for all eternity in heaven. That's what that's what motivates lives of righteousness that bring glory to God. And that's what I hope each of us will do more and more. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the grace that you've shown in the gospel. Lord, we pray that you would drive this home to our hearts. Lord, we pray that you'd drive it home to the heart of anyone who's here that might not be a Christian, who's never repented and trusted in that grace. Lord, I pray that you would help them to see their need and to embrace that for their own joy in eternity. Lord, we pray for ourselves that that you would help us not to be motivated by anything that's unworthy of you, like guilt or ambition or just duty alone. But Lord, we pray that the hope that we have in the gospel would overflow in good works that would bring glory to you and fit us out for an eternal joy with you in heaven. Lord, we pray that you would do that, we ask, for your own glory's sake. So we pray for it in Jesus' name. Amen.